So Job chapter 1, and we'll be starting from verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered, my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him, to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. 
And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Our next passage is from 1 Peter, chapter 1. We'll be starting from verse 3 all the way to verse 7. So 1 Peter, chapter 1, starting from verse 3. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. Well, good morning, friends. A big warm welcome to uh, everyone here today, especially those who are new with us today as well. Uh, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors of the church, uh, along with Ben, uh, who's just at, actually at the back. Uh, and for those here at church, we'll be able to get to meet him a bit later. Uh, a couple of quick announcements before we begin. Firstly, um, this morning uh, on our Facebook page, uh, Ben has posted up a really important pastor's desk for us to consider and to have a, a, a look through. Uh, it deals with um, uh, something about... Uh, it deals with uh, the desire within the church leadership, uh, myself, Ben, and the church council, uh, to partner with like-minded churches uh, and to grow our awareness and our accountability, as, even as an independent church. And so Ben has been thinking through this process of joining a group called FIEC, the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, and he gives some information, really helpful information about uh, what FIEC is and uh, the process towards um, becoming an associate pastor towards that. So please head online and check out the pastor's desk for that too. Now, as you would have heard in the Bible reading, beginning our sermon series in the book of Job, Job is a huge and massive book. Uh, I think we all come to it with all sorts of preconceptions and ideas, and not only preconceptions and ideas, we all come to it with our, with our own experiences, our own baggage, our own hurts. Some of us have come here today um, after a good week or a, a good few weeks, and uh, we're ripping and ready to receive this word. Others have come with deep hurts and deep sorrows, and others, like myself today, have come feeling very emotionally flat. Uh, And so I'm going to pray, 
And I'm going to ask God to bless us as we look at this word. I'm going to ask God to help us by his spirit, hear this word, receive it, no matter what stage of life we're at, and no matter how uh, we've come to his word this morning. So please join me in praying. Uh, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks again for your word. And we thank you especially that you speak, that you have not left us in doubt as to who you are and how we are to respond to you. We thank you for this word that you've given us in the book of Job, and and despite how big it is and how massive it is, we ask for your Spirit's help now. Holy Spirit, help us understand this word. Help us to see the glory of Christ through it. Help us ultimately to hear you speak and to trust you and to trust your Father and your Son. And Father, we pray that you'll help us now and wrestle with this together and help me to speak clearly from this text as I ought. For we ask these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the clear facts of life in this world is the fact of suffering. The pain of life, that sense and feeling that something is wrong. We age, we hurt, we're sick, we lose loved ones. But when it comes to suffering in the Bible... A big question that I want to ask, and I want to ask uh, a question that I want to keep asking through this series, is, is there such a thing as unjust suffering? Suffering that has no clear rhyme or reason. Does the Bible allow for that? And perhaps more to the point, does your faith allow for some sort of mystery when it comes to suffering? Are you content with asking the question, why God and not receiving a clear, straightforward answer to that question. Now, at first glance, we may think that the book of Job is about suffering, and for those who have read it recently, it may may feel like a very theoretical, a very heady debate on that topic. But the book of Job is much deeper than that, much more practical than that, and answers the question I've just asked, but in a way that perhaps we are not ready to receive but need to receive. If it all sounds intriguing, then let me invite you to stick around with us over the next coming six weeks, including today, as we explore what have some have called an unparalleled work of genius. Let me give a brief overview of this book before we dive into our text today. The book of Job is a very big book. Some of it is made up of narrative, like our passage today in Job chapter 1 and 2, but mostly it is dialogue between Job and his three friends in the form of poetry. The book is structured in a series of cycles, uh, and you can, as you can see here. And after the introduction and Job's opening, the three friends each take it in turn to address Job. And as you can see in the, on the diagram, poor Zophar only gets to speak twice. Uh, it may, it, however, it probably becomes obvious by chapter 26 that they aren't persuading Job of their opinion. And the climax of the story, the climax of the book, comes right at the end there in chapters 38 to 41, when God finally appears and addresses Job personally. Our six sermons will cover this book, but not every verse will be looked at in detail. We'll be walking through and hitting on some of the major themes that should help us not only read the book well, but also listen to its point and purpose. And through this, we'll also see that suffering is the vehicle for the dialogue. It is a theme, but the major theme of the book is more centered on the issue of wisdom, particularly the limits of human wisdom. 
But first, let's meet our title character. In the opening verses, we learn three quick things about Job. So if you have your Bibles there, let me encourage you to keep them open to Job chapter 1. We'll be glancing at it and then reading some parts. First, in the first opening verses, we learn three things. We first learn that he's from Uz, Az, Uz, uh, which is probably in Edom. That is to say that Job is an Edomite. He is not an Israelite. How he came to know of Yahweh, the God of the Bible, we do not know. And while he have known, may have known very little about Yahweh, we know as we read that what he knew he trusted and worshipped. And we'll see that again in a second. Number two, we learn that Job is prosperous, enormously so. Uh, check out the stock take of his wealth in chapter 1, verse 3. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 female donkeys. All of that livestock. And then you've got to imagine the, the numerous servants there to, to serve and take care of them as well as all the money required for the feed and the, the upkeep and the maintenance. What is the significance of the female donkeys? I actually don't know. Um, but we also see that there's just heaps of servants there to take care of them. And on top of that, we read about Job's 10 children. A big family like this is a wonderful blessing from God. The description of Job as the greatest of all the people of the East may have been an understatement. Number three, we find out that Job is righteous, blameless before God. Blameless here doesn't mean sinless. Later on in chapters 13 and 14, uh, Job will even admit to his own general sinfulness. So he's not saying that he is completely sinless. But blameless here means that he is genuine and authentic about his faith. What you see on the outside is what you will also reveals what is actually going on in his heart. He is a man of personal integrity. A man in verse 1 who we read fears God, who turns away from evil. So he's habitually repenting, turning away from evil words and deeds and thoughts. We also see that his piety reaches to influencing his children. For whenever they gathered to feast, which I think is just innocent feasting, it's not a hard partying, I think Job would rise then early the next morning to offer burnt offerings for each of them just in case they sinned against God in their hearts. And then in verses 1 to 5, you get this clear picture then that's being very clearly established. Job is a good man, blameless in the sight of God. His character here is being clearly seared into our minds as we walk through the rest of the book. And in these verses, we have, in some ways, the epitome of the prosperity gospel. Job is righteous before God and incredibly wealthy. If there was ever a poster boy for the prosperity gospel, it would be Job. Have faith in God and watch that bank balance grow. But what happens next shatters that form of false teaching and shatters any sense that faithfulness always leads to being materially blessed. In chapter 1, verse 6 to chapter 2, verse 8, we get a series of scenes uh, swapping back and forth from heaven to earth. We get the camera, in some ways, panning up to heaven and then panning back down to earth. And there's also a fair bit of repetition in these sections, emphasizing the point being made about Job the man, how God views him, and how we, the reader, should also view him. We begin in chapter 1, verse 6, in the first heavenly scene. 
we see the angels, the sons of God, presenting themselves to Yahweh. This is sort of like a heavenly council, kind of like the president's cabinet meeting with his advisors uh, reporting for duty. And in a bit of a surprise, we have Satan appearing among them as well. Satan, the adversary of God, the accuser of God's people. Now, how is Satan appearing before God in this way? It's worth, the appearance of Satan here is worth pausing on because quite a few people have tried to work out or have had issues with how God can stand the sinfulness of someone like Satan in his presence. So the first thing to notice is the context of this appearance. This meeting is not about fellowship, but about governance. It's a counsel for God to draw spiritual beings to do his will. Satan appears here, I think, to remind us that God does not have fellowship with evil, but he can and does use evil in his government of the world. Satan is not enjoying God's presence in the sense of being blessed by it like the other angels. Satan is being used. Now, this might be a little bit tricky for our minds to get our head around, for our heads to get around, but the Bible does speak of God using evil spirits to do his will. There's another incident in 1 Kings chapter 22 of a man named Micaiah, Micaiah, that's right, who has a similar vision of uh, this heavenly council. And in this vision, Micaiah sees and notices a lying spirit, a spirit who speaks lies, speaking up and then being sent out by Yahweh to do Yahweh's will. So there's no inconsistency in a lying spirit being present in God's council and having Satan there as well. See, our view of, the, of, our view of God and the spiritual world needs to be informed by the Bible. The Bible does not speak of God operating in a whatever God says goes, end of story kind of way. So, you know, it's not, the Bible does not speak of things happening good and bad as always and only coming directly from the hand of God. That's actually a Muslim view of Allah. And the Bible does not speak of there being two equal and opposite powers at work, uh, at fighting against each other, God versus Satan in a kind of way. Uh, as C.S. Lewis observes, Satan is not equally opposite to the goodness of God. He is not, equally, he is not as equally bad and equally as powerful as God. Satan, in his evil designs, still serves God's purposes. God is sovereign, in complete control, and there are no rivals to his supremacy. So these chapters here reveal to us that God governs the world through the spiritual realm, both good and bad. Now this is important for us to understand because as we read through these heavenly and earthly scenes, we will get to see both the physical and the spiritual realities at play. And in both cases, God is in control. So back to the scene at hand. Satan approaches the throne and God gets his attention. And then in verse 8, you notice that God brings up the topic of Job. He says, have you considered my servant, Job? Job gets the title of servant, which only Moses, the patriarchs, and the prophets get. So Job is actually in very good company. And then God repeats what we read back in chapter and verse 1, that Job is a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. 
Now, of course, Satan knows Job. Job. How can you miss a man like that? But Satan responds by challenging God. He argues that Job only fears and worships God because Job has discovered the prosperity gospel. Job is godly for the gains. He is faithful for the financial fruit. He plays righteous for the rewards. Satan throws down a challenge. God, you've put a hedge around Job. You're protecting him. But take all of that away, and I guarantee you he will curse you to your face. What's at stake here? What's, the, what's at stake from Satan's challenge? The honor and glory of God. Satan is saying that God is only worthy of worship because God gives good stuff to those who follow him. Satan is saying that if you take that stuff away, then God in of himself alone will not be enough for people to keep holding on to. Now again, before we move on, that's something for us to pause and think about. See, Satan's motives are always 100% of the time aggressive and malicious, but his argument here has weight. And the only way to prove him wrong is to find out if Satan is right. Before we get to the earthly scene, there's another question we've got to address. The honor and glory of God is being challenged by Satan. So, is it self-centered for God to seek and desire his own glory? See, for us humans, if we were to uh, desire glory and to seek our own glory, that would be super inappropriate. Megalomania is the word we would use to describe that. We are imperfect beings. So for us, it would be wrong to seek to glorify ourselves and have others glorify us. But for God, the only truly perfect and truly good being, the desire to glorify himself is the most deeply right thing in the universe. Maybe an imperfect analogy here may help from Christopher Ashe in his commentary. Say if I, Pastor Stephen, suggested that I should be given the Nobel Prize for chemistry, then, some, then suggesting something like that would be deeply inappropriate. Why? Because my knowledge of chemistry is very poor. I believe some people have used the Latin phrase non-existent. Right? Some have, you know, so if the Nobel Prize Committee then awarded me the prize for chemistry, we would know something has gone deeply wrong. But let's say a brilliant chemist was able to invent a formula to cure all cancers. And then they said, and they suggested, that they be given the prize. Well, that would be actually slightly different. Indeed, if they were not given the prize, then something would be wrong. Now, in a slightly, an imperfect, faintly similar way, the universe has gone terribly wrong when God is not given ultimate glory. So because God's glory is on the line, God allows Satan to destroy all that Job has. The only restriction is that Satan cannot touch Job himself. And so from the heavenly scene, the, the camera pans down to, in verse 13, and the camera shifts down to earth. And the first thing we read in verse 13, so have a look at verse 13. We read that Job's sons and daughters are together as they normally are, family feasting and drinking. Why are we being told that first? 
But before we can enjoy the festivities with them, bad news comes to Job. If you've ever had your house robbed or burgled, then you know that feeling of being violated, that your safe space has been invaded. Job must have been feeling that as the bad news first rolled in. So in verse 15, Job is told that the Sabians, men of the east, have raided and stolen away his 500 oxen, 500 donkeys, and then killed his servants. That is shocking news. But before Job has time to process what has happened, another servant rushes in with more news. And in fact, this whole conversation is meant to be read as one quick succession of things after another. Wave after wave is now going to crash onto Job with no pause in between. Another servant rushes in before the first has finished to tell Job that fire of God from heaven Uh, Fire from God fell from heaven. A massive lightning storm has raged over his 7,000 sheep, and they they have all been electrocuted to death along with their shepherds. Imagine the carnage of all those dead bodies laying out in the field. But again, before Job has time to imagine that and let that sink in, another servant rushes in. This time, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, had planned and formed three raiding parties, an act of terrorism, to steal away his 3,000 camels and kill all of his servants out in the field. This is relentless bad news. Natural disaster, attacks from foreigners, his physical worth has completely dried up. This is the billionaire waking up to the news that the stock market has crashed, his investments have all dried up, his investment properties have all been destroyed by fire and floods, and his insurers have now also filed for bankruptcy. Wealth gone in one day. But again, before Job has a chance to pause and to take in all of this bad news that he is now completely poor, the trauma is not yet done. Remember how Job's children were all together at the start of our scene? Oh no, a fourth messenger. All ten of his children are gone. A massive wind has completely destroyed the home that they were gathered in. It is total destruction. Now this part of the book of Job is meant to be read quickly, but if you read through it slowly, you cannot help but weep with Job. I think we're used to seeing suffering in our world. We're used to seeing the post-traumatic stress disorders that come in times of natural disaster, terrorism, and war, but rarely, if ever, in human history has there been such a succession of extreme disaster as has happened to Job. I think the, perhaps the closest example I can think of uh, is the man, is, it comes from a, name, a man named Horatio Spafford. Now, Spafford married Anna Larson in 1861, and they had four daughters together, Annie, who was 12, Maggie, who was seven, Bessie, who was four, and an 18-month-old baby named Tanetta. In 1871, so 10 years after they got married, Spafford invested heavily into real estate in North Chicago. Six months later, the great Chicago fire of 1871 destroyed all of his investments. Financially, he was now ruined. Two years later, still reeling from this financial loss, he and his family planned to travel uh, to Europe to support their evangelist friend, Dwight L. Moody. Uh, Some business demands prevented Spafford from joining his family immediately, so he sent his wife and his four daughters on ahead of him uh, to board the steamship, the Ville de Havre. Um, While crossing the Atlantic, 
Their steamship that they were on board was struck by an iron sailing vessel, sinking their ship in less than 12 minutes, killing 226 people, including all four of Spafford's daughters. When his wife, arrived, uh, when his wife made it to, safely to England, she sent Spafford a telegram with a simple, striking message. Saved alone. What do I do now? Immediately, Spafford booked passage to England to join his wife, and the journey was long. Spafford spent a lot of that time in reflection and prayer. And then four days into that journey, the captain knocked on his door and told Spafford, I believe we are passing over the spot where the Ville de Havre went down. Walking out onto the deck, staring down at the watery grave of his daughters, filled with a torrent of emotion, Spafford took a pencil and wrote down these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. In the middle of Job's tragedy, he would respond in a similar way. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 20 with me. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. See, Satan predicted that Job would curse God to his face. Instead, he responded by blessing God. Now, if this was all of Job's story, if that was it, this would be a wonderful conclusion. But we're not done yet. We return back, the camera pans back up again to another heavenly scene in chapter 2, verse 1. There is no indication of what time has passed between these scenes. Again, the angels are presenting themselves to God, reporting for duty. Again, Satan enters the room. And again, God brings up the topic of Job. In chapter 2, verse 3, God again repeats the phrase that Job is a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. This is the third time we are now being told, uh, we have now read this phrase. This time Satan yours back, skin for skin. Not exactly sure what that means by itself, but he certainly wants to push the matter further. The challenge he issues in verse 5 then is relatively clear. Hit Job's personal flesh and he will finally curse you. Now it might have been that Satan is arguing that Job remained faithful because he himself wasn't physically hurt. You know, sure, it's painful for things, his property to go. It's painful for his family to go, to disappear. But he's okay. But you hit him physically, you hit him again, and he will show you his true colors. And the most shocking thing, I think, in these chapters is that for a second time, God allows that to happen. That God allows Satan to strike Job. He could have responded, enough is enough. You've already hit him, and he remained faithful. We're done. But God doesn't. He allows Satan to strike Job physically and only to spare his life. Why does God allow this second trial? Now, here's a crucial lesson 
that we've already kind of touched upon and we will circle back to again at the end of the book. The crucial lesson in some ways for the book of Job is this. The glory of God is more important than Job's personal comfort. God sees what we must, that it is absolutely necessary and right that Job should suffer now a per, uh, should now suffer a personal and intimate attack, attack on his physical body to see without a doubt absolutely that God is worthy of worship. The God the glory of God here is more important than Job's personal comfort. And if it's more important if if it's more important than Job's comfort it will be more important than our comfort as well. So in verse 7 to 8, the camera pans down from heaven one final time, and Satan moves immediately and strikes Job with loathsome and searingly painful sores, festering open wounds and ulcers from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Unable to scratch himself with his fingers normally, Job has to pick up a piece of broken pottery to give himself some tiny relief. It's an objectively horrifying picture. A man who has been struck already with profound grief is now physically racked in pain. His whole body is crying out. Pain hits him from every corner. Now we will see if Job will serve God only for what God gives him. Now everything Job has, his wealth, his family, his physical health, have all been stripped away. You couldn't take more from Job without killing him. And then in chapter 2, verse 9, comes the voice of his remaining loved one. Job's wife doesn't get much airtime in this book. She says this one line and then disappears. And it's tempting to judge his wife for her words, but I do think she speaks out of compassion. See, it's not the first time, and it won't be the last, that a wife has seen her husband suffering so terribly that she wished him the peace of a quick death. But we know maybe what she doesn't that what she says next makes her essentially the mouthpiece of Satan. What she wants, for good reason, and what Satan wants are now perfectly aligned. Do you still hold fast your integrity, she asks. Curse God and die. To curse God is to invite his judgment of death upon you. She wants a quick death for her suffering husband. Satan wants Job to curse God as well for it will prove him right. But then notice how Job responds in verse 10. He responds again in faith. He rebukes her lovingly, saying that her words are not worthy of her. She speaks and sounds like a foolish woman would. Job responds by trusting God. The same God who gave him good has also given these hard and difficult times. And so he humbly bows to God's providence. And in the final line of verse 9, it sums up again what we've already seen. In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. He remains blameless, upright, and a man who fears God. Now, before, we finish, before the scene finishes, three friends turn up in chapter 2, verse 11 to 13. Their names all seem to be connected to the East as well. They seem to represent the collective wisdom of the East, the worldly uh, men of great worldly wisdom. And they are also his friends, not Facebook friends, Friends in the deepest sense of the word friends. They have a deep, profound, committed relationship to each other. And they hear of Job's disaster. 
They speak to each other. They make an appointment together to go and see him. The journey must have taken weeks or months. And then in verse 12, we read that when they arrive, they can hardly even recognize Job. The person who they had from their memory and the person in front of them are just completely different. If you've ever visited a friend or a loved one in the final stages of cancer, you know what this is like. The person lying in bed is just a pale shadow of their former selves. It is very hard to recognize them. The three friends arrive, tearing their robes, symbolizing kind of the tearing of their hearts in grief and agony. They sprinkle dust on their heads, symbolizing their mourning with him. And then they sit on the ground for seven days and seven nights in complete silence. Now, most people see their silence as the only loving thing that they did. And we, you know, as we open uh, uh, the, the chapters a bit later and as they open their mouths, well, keeping their mouths shut now is certainly a lot better. But there's something a bit awkward about being silent for, being silent for seven days. See, if you know someone's suffering immensely and you go visit them, Right? Holding their hand and, and keeping silent with them is a loving thing in the moment. If you do that for a few days on end, then it becomes super, super awkward. This is eerie, not comforting. I think actually we are meant to read this silence a bit more ambiguously. Being silent for seven days was often a sign of mourning for the death of a loved one. It's what Joseph did when his father Jacob died. Job's friends are mourning for Job as though he's already dead. And it's a bit of a sad note to be finishing on. Job and his terrible suffering, his friends sitting silently there, treating him as dead. How lonely must that have been? We know that this suffering has happened in order to defend God's glory, he suffered not just as an ordinary man, but one who was blameless and righteous to prove Satan wrong. But Job and his friends don't know this. What they make of his situation, we'll find out in the coming weeks. For now, though, as we come to the end of our passage, a, a big question looms over us. What do we do with this? Am I, are we meant to slip into the shoes of Job, prepare ourselves for the same sort of suffering? Prepare to respond in the same way? Not quite. I think the first thing we need to remember about this book is that it's a book of extremes. Job is not only a rich man, but one of the greatest in the East. His downfall is from a height that not many of us will ever reach. How, how, he, he does not go from kind of middle-class wealth to being poor. He goes from extravagant riches to absolute poverty. And it doesn't happen gradually. It wasn't a slow burn of wealth. It wasn't a slow loss over time. It, he lost it all in one day. He also doesn't experience the loss of one child or two. He, he loses all ten of his children, again, all on the same day. So the extremeness of what Job experienced is not our lived experience but the extremeness of what Job experienced foreshadows for us, reading today, another blameless and righteous man. Not a great man from the East, but the greatest man who ever lived. Not just a man who was blameless, but was also sinless. 
a man who also emptied his infinite glory, humbled himself in the form of a servant, and suffered unjustly at the hands of other sinners. The God of this universe, who in one short lifetime went from being the pride of heaven to being degraded, naked, beaten, and hung by nails on a cross. Job gives us a picture of Jesus to come. The picture of a blameless man who would endure immense suffering for the glory of God. This is how Jesus himself says, speaks of it. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, the hour for my death. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. That the suffering of Job is a shadow of the greater suffering we see in Christ. And yet, even though it is a shadow of the suffering we see in Christ, there is something also to be said in these chapters as we, as we, as we reflect on it about how God engages with his servant Job and how he engages with us as well. See, in these opening chapters of Job, we see God allowing Satan to test Job Satan is in the business not of testing but of destroying, but in God's good sovereign providence, that malicious desire is used by God to test his servants. For Christians, we have to remember that God allows also tests his people through suffering, and he may even use Satan as an agent of that testing. There's this moment in Luke chapter 22 when Jesus warns Peter that Satan demanded to have you, you being plural, including the other disciples, and that, he might, that Satan might sift them like wheat in a similar way in which Satan demanded to sift and test Job. Now, Jesus, as he is telling Peter this, doesn't say that he has blocked Satan from doing this. Rather, he says this, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. See, Satan demanded to test Peter and the disciples, and he, his demand must have been granted. And Peter recognized that though he failed, he would, he would deny Jesus three times, but later he would be restored and he would repent, and he would eventually respond well. And because, because he would respond well because he knows Jesus had prayed for them. And then Peter would go on to strengthen the faith of his brothers and the church. And Peter understood that these trials are there for a reason, for a purpose. He understood this as he wrote to believers who faced trials as well, and facing trials to test the genuineness of their own faith. In this, this expansive blessings of being in Christ by faith, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor of, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You hear that progression of the same theme? Testing to display the glory of Christ. The test of genuineness of faith, which results in the praise and glory of Jesus. Now, who is the one who is setting about these trials? Who is the one who is trying to destroy the believers? Peter also reminds his readers later in chapter 5. 
be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. It is Satan who seeks to devour, but he can be resisted. Notice how he can be resisted simply by faith, simply by trusting and holding on to Jesus and the gospel, bringing your doubts and your pains and your complaints to Jesus, and then holding on to the truths you find in the gospel. This is how you resist Satan. So, as we walk away from Job chapter 1 and 2, as we think on this as Christians, we don't want to be naive and mistaken about the ways in which Satan works. We don't want to think that God has changed how, um, his mind about giving Satan permission to test his people. We do have a dangerous enemy who continues to lurk around seeking to destroy believers, just as he did with Job. But, and this is super important to understand, there is a key difference for us. And that difference is that we live on this side of the cross. On the cross, Jesus came and disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The rulers and the authorities, Satan, in his trials and tests, he wants to get to us, but he's also been disarmed. He is a prowling lion, but his teeth have been pulled. John, the Apostle John, wrote this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And how did he do this? John would also write later that because of the cross, Satan has in fact been thrown out of heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered, they, the saints, have conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. You see how the cross changes everything for us now. As we read through the book of Job, we first think of how his extreme suffering points us to the greater suffering of Christ who suffered for us. And Satan is still able to attack and he spends what time he has left angrily doing that. We are called to endure, but in Christ, Satan's power is diminished. He can no longer accuse us before God because he no longer has access to God and Satan no longer has God's ear. So when it comes to Satan and the evil spiritual realm that opposes Christians, we can have supreme confidence. Confidence not just in our abilities to remain faithful, but confidence that the cross breaks Satan's power and secures our eternal future. And so when the tests come, hold fast. And the tested genuineness of our faith will one day shine for the universe to see. One final small piece of application before we finish. Job 1 and 2 has done a very clear job of showing us that Job is suffering greatly and that he suffered innocently. But it's curious 
that in the rest of the book, these opening scenes are never mentioned again. Even when God turns up right at the end to answer Job all of his questions about why is he suffering and how fair is God and is God just to allow these things, as God appears, he doesn't go to Job and say, look, I know you suffered hard, but let me just point you to something called Job 1 and 2. Right? You exist in Job 3, and that's okay, but let me just show you what happened in Job 1 and 2, and it'll all make sense. He doesn't do that. And you know, when we read on the rest of the book, Job and his, we, we the reader know what happened, but Job and his three friends do not. And so in the coming weeks, you will see Job's friends accusing Job of having done something wrong to earn God's wrath. And we're sitting here going, that's not true. And then we'll see Job accusing God of being unfair, but we're sitting here going, but there's actually more to the story. We know that their knowledge and understanding is limited. But then we've got to step back and realize that the book is trying to reveal something about our own human wisdom as well. It too is just as limited. Just like Job, we do not know everything that is going on in the spiritual realm, nor even in our own lives. So that should provide us with a great sense of, or it should grow within us, a great sense of humble dependence on God and humility. I am not God. God is God. And he knows everything that is going on. And praise God for that. Let me pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good, and that your goodness remains even in our trials, and even as we've seen through these opening chapters, the trials of your servant Job, you remain good and you are worthy of glory and praise and worship. So we ask, Father, as we continue on in this book now, as we wrestle with the lessons that we're about to read through, we ask for your help again, that you would help us to humbly depend on you. We know more of the story than Job and his friends do, and yet, we also are humbly reminded that we don't know everything. Our wisdom is limited. So please, Father, help us to remember that as we read through this book. Help us to give thanks as well, that you are always good. And help us to trust that. Father, for us here who are going through trials, physical illness, physical setback and disability, mental health, uh, and mental illness, for those of us who are struggling, for those of us who have the weight and the burden of past guilts and hurts, for those of us who are emotionally flat, we ask, Father, that your goodness and kindness to us through your word will shine through. Help us to see that and help us to hold fast for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.